0: Tea, yeah?
1: Russell The
2: Davis Russell the Davis. <laughs> Russell the Davis. Russell the Davis. the Davis. the Davis. the Davis. Years and years. And-
3: The manage down through Years and years and years, yeah. Let's watch a brand new show, cause chip blows clear away those fears, yeah. Let's watch a new show, cause Doctor Who
1: sucks.
2: Who cares about years and years? Episode six, the finale, two thousand and twenty-nine to two thousand and thirty-four okay we've had our grand finale of years and years now and I'm sure it generated a lot of hot takes from many corners so let's survey this room and check out its four corners and ask you guys what did you think of the finale
0: it was okay <laughs> I was not um, overjoyed with it I was not heartrendingly disappointed with it I thought it was just okay
3: I thought it was it was it was messy but I think it was you know, kind of that typical RTD series finale level of messy, where, where, and 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 to preempt, I've I've not seen any of his other series. This is I've only seen Doctor Who, and I've only seen Years and Years. So I'm not sure. You know, I'm only fond, and I'm only going off the patterns I know from Years and Years, or from Doctor Who. But from watching this, it kind of remind me a little bit of being of how he kind of gets loose with logic because uh, he wants. Yeah. He wants a certain end point to happen, and he, you know, and that end point, you know, is is realized or whatever. And he, there's a certain theme and a message he's really trying to get out. And you know, at that point, like I said, it kind of gets a little messy, a little loose with logic um, as he gets to that point. However, this in particular. Because I vibed, me personally, I I kind of liked the message and the theme he was going for. I was more willing to excuse how kind of messy the writing got in the end, as opposed to some of his Doctor Who finales. It was certainly
1: not the finale I was hoping for from the show. I did not hate it. I was compelled all the way through. You know, particularly at some points I was so engrossed on my rewatch, I could scarcely make notes and stuff. But nonetheless, there were ways in which the message and the themes of it resonated with me. There were ways in which it didn't. There were elements of it which were... It was decidedly in a different register from all the previous episodes. And it did give me very much this sense of needing to be uh, an uplifting uh, sort of... I mean, it was in some ways a Doctor Who finale, almost. The way everything plays out, the way everything wraps up, and I I hate to use this word, but it did give me ever so slight um, hope punk vibes Mm -hmm,
3: mm -hmm.
1: so this this um the the, the ultimate sort of uplifting nature of it it was so counter to everything i was expecting from episode one onwards i totally thought we were going for the doom-laden bittersweet melancholy dystopian future world gets nuked i totally thought we were going for that kind of ending and the fact that we scarcely even touch on that it really surprised me and you know i would be lying if i said did not disappoint me a bit but i would say it was certainly a uh, it was compelling it was gripping it was fairly interesting
2: yeah it wasn't long into the episode where i remembered oh of course this is a russell t davies finale and it's it's not just doctor who like you were saying deadlocked it's not uncommon with his shows to have endings that are kind of adrift from the rest of the shows, they might be a bit anticlimactic, like Cucumbers was, they might be, maybe incoherent, too harsh, they might be incomprehensible, like some of Doctor Who's, or parts of this, but yeah, I think he does have an issue with endings, and it's not that they're not planned out or anything, the problem might be that they're very planned out, like he has these endpoints in mind, the ending of years and years, he said he's had in his mind for 25 years, presumably the Edith turning into a water ghost thing, and i think that explains to a degree why it feels kind of disconnected from everything else the show was doing when it's suddenly the thing he thought of a long time ago in a show that's so much about the now and the close future
3: yeah well i i thought it was interesting because um gig you mentioned how like this seem this this ending this type of ending was contrary to what you thought would happen going through you know the series and I'm actually, I'm actually on the other side of that, where I thought we would get, I was kind of thinking we would get this ending, and I kind of was hoping for it, to be honest, because again, I think that's what he's trying to say. And the reason why I say that is because it mainly comes back to um, two moments that are really big for me, and they've been kind of discussed on the on the podcast before. Um, but it's when he has, um, I believe it's it's, you know, the lines are talking about how. Um, the time they're living in seems so extraordinary compared to the past and how, you know, back, back then everything was, was kind of nice and they were, were in the pause where everything was nice and, and kind of perfect and peachy and no one cared about politics and everything. Um, and they, they made a point to have that conversation twice. And, I, and when I heard that, it felt like Rusty T. Davies was trying to, you know, show that that's what people say, but he's trying to say, like, that's not true. Um, For the same reasons it was kind of criticized or that kind of idea is criticized on the podcast before, you know, this kind of I don't know how to call it, but like like temporal exceptionalism, like thinking like you're the time you're living in right now is is like the end point. Like this is, you know, this is. Things are not going to get any, you know, or things are just going to get worse from here. They've never been this bad. Everything else was was fine. We were able to work that out. But this time we're living in. this is doomsday. And, And I don't, and the fact that they had those conversations and RTD kind of, you know, was kind of pushing us, I felt like pushing us towards looking at that sentiment critically. And it's kind of what Neo said about how a lot of people think like they were born in the wrong generation or whatever. They kind of glorify what happened in the past. I really think like RTD was going for a, um, you know, yeah things things seem crazy, but they've kinda always been crazy. The world's always been mad. Um, and this is not any kind of exception to that. I was expecting this ending. I wasn't surprised by it. I was kinda surprised by how a little messy it was, but I I thought it was gonna end in this kind of positive, happy upswing, and I didn't I didn't expect any kind of nuclear holocaust or anything like that.
2: Now that that's well said. I like your terminology of was it temporal exceptionalism?
3: I don't know what I just said. <laughs> I'm sorry Yeah, I think that's what... I don't even know if that makes sense,
2: but... No, that that makes sense. That's really good. I think... I know what you mean. It's partly what irritated me with the finale. I feel like the first four episodes of the series are very... They link together very well and they tell a very connected story that makes sense for the characters. Especially with Danny, who kind of serves as the main character. And when he dies it's like the point of the show was to kind of disavow that temporal exceptionalism stuff and show how gradually life and societies can degrade and get much worse and get as bad as those news stories you hear about and you turn off because they're too far away and you can't emotionally invest in them like a refugee is drowning in that and then episode five felt a little different because it's so much more about reaction to danny's death and all the stuff going on with victor and Stephen becoming evil and everything and then in this one it's like if the first four and kind of five episodes were about specifically showing how society gets worse and how... I think RTD, even in the writer's tale, he said it's like fascism turning up on a regular British family's doorstep. The finale skips so many steps, like at the ending, the ending montage. And BBC is back. Yeah, like it's <laughs> happy now and it's like things were set up realistic and grounded before to how things can get worse. And then everything just got better. Yeah. I know in Muriel's speech, RTD's kind of setting out how he thinks things can get better, but I wasn't really buying the way he was saying they can improve. And then it was so frenetic and rushed how things improved.
0: I think the second half of this episode was honestly, for me, like devoid of content. I mean, I know Geek said that um, he found it gripping and engaging, but the most shocking thing for me about watching this was that it actually dragged. And like that got worse for me on the second time because so much of this episode is spent just watching people do stuff and it's like hinging on tension and like oh will they get victor out uh will edith survive and people aren't saying anything and what i loved so much about like the earlier episodes is just the um these small minute character interactions which like reveal things about their personal lives but here we're just watching stuff happen and i think the crack started to show in episode five with that big long boring edith heist scene which sort of like got better at the end when she started talking to bethany but it's just very like lacking and all the stuff about um, not blaming the tides of history and taking personal about accountability. I thought that was really great but you know in the second half of this episode there's nothing more Russell has to say about that really. It just sort of curtails off.
2: Well the explosion, the first episode had an explosion then the last episode had an explosion. It's all this classic very thought out RTD symmetry. Just like at the start of the finale we hear Ruby talking about how they're injecting life into Previously inert uh, molecules to create new foodstuffs, and then at the end, that's kind of what Edith does, becoming like a new life form made out of water. So these little connections that were totally intended—they're, you know—they're all crawling around. A
0: bit of um, asymmetry, which I thought was interesting, was that you have episode one and Edith is practically not in it, and by the end of this, she's our main character, sort of. I mean, her journey is what the whole finale hinges on. She's
3: the doctor in this episode.
1: She even regenerates, like. <laughs> it's interesting that you call edith um, the main character of the episode because um as much as i do get that and certainly she defines the endings or that big final minisode i also felt that a big emotional spine of the finale was stephen and celeste I think certainly that, that sort of subplot there culminating in that massive confrontation they have in the second half of the episode, which is sort of, I'd say, one of the mo- more intense scenes in the whole series.
0: That was my least favourite scene in the entire series, actually. <laughs>
1: oh, wow, really? I really? Was- Why? Wow. Am I?
0: I thought that was a genuinely bad scene because if you watch it again, nothing happens. They don't talk, especially Celeste doesn't talk. It goes, Stephen, put down the gun. No, put it down. No, put it down. No and then a guy walks in, it's just so um, hollow. And like, if you take Mari's music out of that scene, there's no content.
1: It's funny you say that because I kind of hated the music. I would have preferred it in total silence.
0: (laughs) Steven's behaviour throughout the scene as well was totally... Unconvincing. I mean, he's in absolute hysterics to the point where he can't even tell that he's, like, scaring Celeste to death. You know, th- she's frightened for her life. And then um, Woody comes in, and after he gets shot, Steven's all kind of slightly cavalier about it. He's like, oh, that worked. And it's a bit of like, a cool moment, and it's just felt really off. I don't know what, like... Yeah. Just not a good scene, honestly.
2: It felt dramatically inert to me in that same way. Like, if you look at the dialogue like there's just there's not much happening dramatically in there especially because you know like i maybe i just read this too accurately but this felt like a um a real i'm lucky i have this letter moment and that i already knew the gun was for him not for her
0: yeah absolutely and um Mm. you learn nothing about the characters steven when he doesn't realize that he's making celeste you know fear for her life it feels like russell is making him not realize that rather than him organically not realizing that because it's supposed to be a reveal, like, oh, this gun is for me. But as soon as he takes it out, it's like, obviously, you know, he wants to die himself. So it's just completely, there's no, you know, weight to any of those reveals. And I feel like Russell was doing a lot of misdirections in this episode. And that one was one which definitely didn't work. But one that I absolutely loved was when um, Muriel is saying, oh, we divide the money amongst the four of you. and It didn't click for me that she was talking about Celeste, so when she, you know, goes down and kisses Celeste on the forehead. Yeah. That was one of the most... That was lovely. Amazing. Because Celeste is the MVP of the series, I think. Absolutely. Most people have sort of come around to that train by now, which is good. (laughs) Yeah.
2: Something unrelated to all that, but I thought was enjoyable, was when the BBC closed in the first time-skipping montage, the little ticker reel down the bottom was Netflix buys classic titles, ITV stocks saw... Lib Dems overjoyed.
1: I think there was um, there were bits in the ticker about basically all the parties being happy about the BBC shutting down. I think there was a bit of um I think there was some self-congratulatoriness going on with that BBC stuff. Like uh, this idea of like, oh, the BBC, uh, all the political parties hate it, but it tells the truth. And it's so great that it's finally back. Welcome back, guys. There was, I think there was just a bit of this, um, maybe a slight of media group thing and just like RTD being all love a dove with the BBC. I was, like, it was funny.
3: On the ticker, it said Netflix buying classic series. So um, <laughs> if, you yeah. were, if you were to extrapolate that one of those classic series would, could be, I don't know, uh, Doctor Who possibly um, i was thinking blake could,
1: 7 but okay uh, i don't know actually was that, was that even bbc i don't know
3: <laughs> i don't know what you just said my name's not blake but um <laughs> it, it felt it felt like it could possibly be a scathing indictment of the chibnall era um trying to be so netflix-like that rtd says well actually it's just gonna become it's just gonna become netflix chibs so there you go <laughs> could it be
2: speaking of things closing what did you think of the detail (laughs) that the food banks all closed and people didn't donate anything anymore and that was the end of uh what do you call people donating there's a word for it charity charity yeah charity i think that was part of a wider sense
1: of um apocalypticness in the episode including the monkey flu which sort of petered out over the rest of the episode Like, it starts off as like, oh my god, it's the end, there's no more food, everyone's going to get sick, and then that starts to become less and less important.
2: It starts out bananas, but it ends a bit of a lemon, I suppose. Holy shit. Well, I thought it was
3: interesting, I I don't want to be that guy, but you kind of, we're kind of getting into this groove of saying this felt kind of rushed and messy compared to what was built up to in episodes one through four. So I don't want to get all Game of Thronesy.
1: But <laughs> I mean, this is the you- Negative Path reunion, so please yeah, go ahead. Yeah,
3: all right. I'm just going to dive right in. Do you think this needed another episode or two to kind of go into that trend or just needed tighter writing?
2: Maybe less or more. Well, I think one to four, just with a few little rejigs, would have worked completely well as their own thing. But five and six, they kind of opened up a lot. So, yeah, I think you have to shrink it or grow it but yeah this was a kind of awkward size the six
0: i think all this needs to work at a like serviceable level for me was more dialogue scenes in the second half with characters actually saying things with substance and then i would have been happy um as opposed to like lots of long sort of drawn out uh scenes of watching and reacting to things and you know marigold whose music i like but it's sort of carrying the episode almost, but I don't know, maybe another episode would have worked. It's just such a, you know, yeah, messy is the word for sure.
3: It's interesting. I I wanted to bring it back because you're talking about how kind of some scenes just kind of felt wasted. And going back to like that Steven um scene, you know, with him and Celeste, and how it kind of just felt wasted. Um and I kind of feel like what you mean about, you know, it doesn't necessarily need more episodes, more time. It just needed tighter writing. And so that scene could have been something very very you know powerful because obviously now we're we're in the position that Steven is going to be redeemed after what we saw you know what what he did in season or in episode five you know where he's you know being in charge of these death camps and putting to death, you know, someone who's a member of the family, really, who he blames for his brother brother's murder, and he's smiling about it. Like, he's the villain. And then now, at the end of the seri- series, he's kind of redeemed. So that scene could have been really meaningful, kind of showing how he's moved towards redemption or how he feels kind of remorse. But like you said, it's just kind of contentless. Like, there's no real talking going on, so it's w- wasted.
0: And you have to wonder, like, is this Russell's idea of love, which is so critical to the end of the episode mm-hmm. like you just forgive him uh because it's a little bit you know idiot's lantern dare i yeah. say at the end you know that yeah. sort of unconditional uh forgiveness palaver which yeah i'm not i'm not about that it was it was weird
2: there's there's three things about steven being forgiven that really annoy me the first is that it's like he didn't just punch victor or swear at victor he sent him to a concentration camp <laughs> he would learned yeah. earlier in episode 5 kill people through you know pestilence Like he absolutely knew what he was doing and yeah like deadlock says he was smiling about it this isn't a forgivable thing sending someone to a terrible death sending a family member to any death the second thing is he didn't even get a scene with victor this is um this is so Mm. like i was saying dramatically inert like it's just ridiculous to have two characters that are obviously meant to interact and not give him any material together at all did we really need the endless scenes of planning the heist and that instead of just like a one minute dialogue scene between Victor and Steven at the end. Even if I still was uncomfortable with him being forgiven, I would have liked to seen it developed a little bit at least.
0: And we, yeah, we get no insight into his sense of like shame or remorse after mm-hmm. the scene of him shooting Woody in the foot. Or dare I say shooting, shooting Tim Shaw in the foot. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> what annoys me the most is connected to the stuff about his workplace. And that's the whole thing. It seems to be that the idea he could be forgiven is kind of predicated off the fact he was going to whistleblow about the job you know he wasn't completely morally gone like celeste was still on his side to a degree or at least thinking he should be saved because he was gonna that
3: was only because his hand was forced yeah you know what i mean like he kept saying he had this idea you know like i was gonna give the file over to the police and kill myself you know and all this stuff but then he only you know he only does that when the the gig you know the whole the the gig the jig is up like everything everything is on the tv and he pretty much has to do it now because you know everything's falling apart so i thought that was weird yeah how much longer would he have waited otherwise that's a good question
2: i don't think he would have done it the series had marked him multiple times as a coward explicitly in dialogue i think it was just like a salve a way to make himself feel more righteous and moral and okay with what he's doing, the idea that someday, one tomorrow, he'd whistleblow, I don't think he ever would have done it.
3: In,
0: in episode one, he has a little speech about um, how, you know, anyone could start their own political party, but, you know, he doesn't. So he's been framed since the very beginning as the guy who doesn't do stuff. Also, just, if, he, if there's no scenes with Stephen after he shoots Woody, it begs the question, why did he survive? The character has a per- like perfectly natural way to be written out of the series where he shoots himself, except they keep him around to not have a presence in the rest of the episode. It's really strange.
1: I think there are numerous ways in which what RTD wanted for this finale, which is a, on one hand, the happy ending where the bad guys get taken down, and b, the ending minisode where the family all unite for Edith's or ascension or whatever happens there. I think those two things are kind of a bit of a, a bit of a stranglehold, like they force certain decisions. Like, they force the episode to be plotty and sort of action-led in a way that's not as interesting as the dialogue-led scenes. And they lead to stuff like uh, the sort of the, I don't know, maybe too happy, too nice ending for Stephen and such.
0: Yeah, and it's like, the scene where they're all gathered at the end, maybe they they don't speak to each other in that scene, because, like, what would they say? Like, Stephen... Uh, that was weird when you sent Victor to a death camp. Um, how's you, how are you going?
3: (laughs) It should be absolutely on Victor's shoulders whether he wants to forgive Steven or not. You know what I mean? And so, like, like Neo said, like, we don't get a scene where he, you know, forgives him or talks to him or whatever, we just kind of move past it and we say, well, Edith forgives him, you know, so that's, that's fine, you know. But like, to not have Victor the victim of this, get a say or whatever or not get to see his say is, is 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 fucked up a little bit
1: i think victor's really been fucked over by the last two episodes as much yeah. as rtd went on to the press about how well it's not a bury your gaze moment because the drama doesn't straighten around them it's still very much important like victor just got completely shafted in the last two episodes he gets one scene early on in the set where he's like uh, when he talks to his mate in the concentration camp he gets a bit of characterization there that's it and that's kind of disappointing.
0: Well, it's, you know, very pertinent that you should say that because there is literally a line about, Victor, you're not that important. <laughs> <laughs> no, I did kind of like that. Uh, it's just a shame that, like, the, sh- the episode itself agrees. But I did like the sentiment of, like, no, all these all these refugees are important and, you know, yeah. Sorry, Yaz, I forgot you were there.
2: Going back to RTD quotes about the series, uh, regarding the finale, he was saying to the Radio Times, he thought... If there was controversy over the ending, it would mostly be over either this big speech about love and all that. He said, I can absolutely guarantee you there'll be people rapidly taking the piss out of that. It takes a lot of nerve and a deep breath to say, I believe in this speech and I'm going to transmit this on BBC One, that I believe the human race has its potential, the fact we can love and be loved. And then he goes about how men feel embarrassed about love, blah, blah, blah. But I Mm -hmm. think, like, that really wasn't the issue for me. Like, Mm -hmm. I, I don't mind the power of love stuff. It's more... Everything else in the episode and like the structure of it that I think is the problem rather than just like the sentimentality of it exactly.
0: Well, for me, it's also his failure to define love. I mean, he literally, the speech literally goes like, I'm not data, I'm not information, I am my family. Then she lists family members and she says, I'm love. And that's it. There's no elaboration. <sighs> I would like an elab, please.
3: Um. <laughs> well, he did say, yeah, he did say he wrote the speech in 30 seconds in his interview, so that might have some... Oh, it shows. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it shows,
1: Rusty. I kind of liked the speech, personally. I realise it's not very deep, but I think... Well, it's maybe a mixture of how well it was performed as well, but the moment where she... The point where she brings up, you know, her dead mum and her dead brother, and she specifically frames that in terms of the memories, which we now know we've been sort of... The whole show, we've been watching these scientist guys kind of review her memories and stuff, and I think... Uh, there was something it was maybe a bit of a miasma but i think the treatment of it as essentially her memories of her family and that life those experiences she's had with them the the idea that those make both make up who she is and both embody love and existence uh, in a sense i thought linking that to this idea of her becoming data and becoming this cyber ghost or whatever that that kind of um took me by surprise a little bit and I did. I did like it. I did like the 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 feeling of it, the mood of it. It felt elegiac. I think is the word. And I think very much the whole um, that whole final minisode was Artegian just trying to grapple with death and the the idea of something beyond death, which is why I wasn't particularly fussed with the the ambiguity of whether or not it worked, which I know Neo verged about a lot.
2: <laughs> yeah, Ambi- ambiguous, ambiguous endings. I think uh, some I really like. I like them. When the ambiguity is central to the ending itself, like the ending of Blade, well, the revised endings of Blade Runner, you know, the point of whether Deckard is a replicant or not is so important because it's about the humanity of people versus the humanity of androids and what does it matter. So not knowing if he's a robot or not plays into the whole story of the movie or the ending of Inception where, uh, what's his name, Cobb not caring about whether he's in Dream or not anymore shows his emotional arc. But when it's just an ending that's ambiguous so you don't know what happened next I find them tiresome and kind of pretentious and here like we don't see what happens next we don't see if Edith just died or she became a data ghost or something fucked up or whatever in the process and it RTD's had a big deal in the press of saying I will never answer what happened to Edith that's a big reason there will never be a series 2 but like the whole finale is very optimistic and like a bit hope punk and if there was going to be any cynicism injected into it was the super sci-fi high concept consciousness transference stuff really the place to inject the cynicism instead of the grounded relatable issues like climate change or countries descending into fascism with concentration camps and authoritarian leaders or class warfare or the police or anything like that like was the water ghost really the place to introduce ambiguity
0: would you say that all this stuff about stories and memories and the relationship between those things and our life experiences is maybe the kind of thing a certain other writer is better suited towards crafting <laughs> scripts around yeah i'm thinking of a maybe. Certain s- scottish gentleman there's a line where she says like um oh it's not imagination it's just hasn't happened yet like that's moffat that's
1: yeah uh, it pretty is
0: <laughs> like really in a moffat episode
1: Speaking of which, did you like that corridor fantasy she was having with Viv?
0: I
2: loved the filming of it. It looked so good. Yeah, that was great.
0: The look of it was good, but I, I mean, yeah, it was like a cool image, but it just hammered home how this episode didn't have any good Viv scenes.
2: So, yeah. like, what she, the fuck? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, her scene at the start with the journalist was kind of shit, I thought. Like, she was yeah. just um, trotting out Trump cliches Such at a the journalist.
2: Yeah.
0: yeah, just like, lol, he says fake news, she says fake news. Haha, <laughs> it's pretty clever. I mean, because her um, selling the death cams in episode five, I thought was amazing. And yeah, this is nothing. Just nothing.
2: Yeah, the whole idea of chasing her as, <laughs> as her ghost in the machine—it was just, it was, it, it speaks to a bigger problem I had in the episode, and that it was really melodramatic. The lines and how Jessica Hines was delivering them. She's a great actress, but there's no denying it was very melodramatic. And so much of the episode's dialogue was so. Overwrought and theatrical, and it really felt disconnected to even episode five or the past episodes. To me, a lot of the stuff Gran was saying as well, just like the phrasing of "Beware the clowns and trickster men" and on that kind of stuff. It was oh, that was <laughs> terrible! Really, really <laughs> bizarre. The dialogue—it there was no naturalism to it anymore. The other episode R.T.D. is so good at very naturally writing characters speaking like real people, and then in the ends, that it's not even that they're speaking poetic or anything. It's just they're speaking very to the themes and very melodramatically, and it grated quite a bit for me.
3: Beware those men, the jokers and the tricksters and the clowns. They will laugh us into hell. Yeah,
0: I mean, I know I've been going on about how I would have liked more dialogue, but with this stuff at the end about Edith living on through her memories, I kind of would have actually liked less dialogue, because, like, it's an ambiguous situation. It could have used yet less you know just words and words about love and she had the
1: whole speech about becoming an imp a sprite and that was it was very flowery it was just written in a it was almost like a shakespearean register it was a bit strange
3: yeah real people don't talk like that I agree with
1: Neo. I think RTD is um, maybe more of a spiritual writer than he's often considered. It reminds me of that quote from David Lynch about Eraserhead being his most spiritual film, and now everyone's a little <laughs> confused by that. But I think uh, this this episode, it was written in such so much of that register you occasionally got on Who, and even even that one bit you hate in Cucumber, Neo, with the, the ghost turning up, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and just just like when RTD starts kind of switches into a poetic mode, and everything gets kind of flowery and quite you know transcendent and soulful, and it sort of it was quite jarring in a series that had done virtually none of that, with the possible exception of that bit in episode one where Fran was telling the story of the crack, crack which was um, also kind of went nowhere.
2: What's funny, when you said flowery, it just reminded me how, you know, flowers need water to survive and how Edith becomes water at the end. That could also be a bit of symmetry with how her dad became water when she drank him. <sighs>
0: oh, yeah. That's
1: and nice. got flushed. I'm mean, talking, um, talking about Muriel's speech. I thought that speech politically had some decent uh, ramifications because I thought the bit of that speech I really liked mm. was when she specifically called out the element of you know, the whole one pound t shirt bit and the bit where she called out the system whereby people are not kind of given the the value that their labor creates i thought i was really surprised actually that he got that specific with kind of going after uh, not so much capitalism but people's apathy towards it and willingness to participate in it because yeah on one hand it could have just been a very very bland oh take personal responsibility stop criticizing the system blah 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 but it wasn't that like we actually got an attack on this idea of uh on this idea of like a, a a, a mode of production that's fundamentally unequal um a system that fundamentally you know kicks people out of their jobs and dehumanizes and atomizes us there was that specific bit about how we're all just fine with you know the complete automation of these you know these um these places because we don't have to face up to the people being you know paid less than they deserve and i I really liked that and I thought as a dramatic device as well you can see how the speech kind of galvanizes the different family members to take action so you know Rosie obviously that's flagged up very specifically. She calls Gran to thank her. And um, we obviously see its effect on Bethany as well. So I thought I, I liked that. And I thought there is something just quite ballsy about having a huge bit of your final episode be devoted to a character making a big portentous speech about stuff.
0: Yeah, the episode as a whole is way more like didactic than I thought it was going to be. Like it's basically a call to arms. It, it was kind of... which I kind of almost respect that in a way. Um, but I did like the way the speech is written. It felt very like years and years to me, which is a compliment and the rest of the finale didn't feel enough like years and years to me but um it, it had something that bugged me about it which i'm not sure if it's nuance or a flaw which is that like muriel as a person as a character seems too smart to have like voted for um viv rook back in whatever episode she did that because she clearly like is a very thoughtful person and she thinks about you know how her actions have consequences and you know how she plays into the system and I get that she probably saw Viv as someone who would dismantle the system, but, like, remember how Viv started out by saying she doesn't give a fuck about Israel and Palestine? Like, Muriel seems like the kind of person who would give a fuck about Israel and Palestine. And, But I'm not sure if it's highlighting a deliberate uh, contradiction internal to Muriel or if it's just kind of confused, like RTD is writing Muriel sometimes as a slightly misguided older person or as, like, these this, like, wise voice of wisdom and it's sort of in the middle but like i said i haven't decided if that's a problem yet but i think it's interesting nonetheless
1: i think muriel has been contradictory at times you know she's been sort of she 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 kind of seems to go between being really bitchy to celeste and being really lovely to celeste so if you notice
0: yeah and if she like this speech paints her as like a really compassionate person but like she didn't think about celeste's feelings at all back in like one episode ago so it is kind of strange i'm not sure if i'm okay with it
2: i really quite dislike the speech if if i may get on a little 60 second soapbox about why it didn't work for me uh so if you zoom out of the speech itself a bit and you look at the scope of the larger series and the interviews rtd's been describing the big theme of the series as is this you you know the question And he specifically calls out like Twitter cancellations, he's saying whether the evils of others that were supposedly so quick to cancel or condemn people over aren't hypocritical or something we're complicit in or in league with. And he's described our Viv's like an extension of ourselves, how crude she is is apparently what we're like deep down or want to be. And while her methods and way of speaking are shocking, a lot of what she does or says is fundamentally understandable. And he's outright said, like we said in an earlier podcast, stuff like the blink technology banning uh, for kids and that kind of thing is fundamentally actually a good thing. And then in Muriel's big speech, all the problems of, you know, the generation are placed at the generation's feet. The things like automation and the job loss that results from that, she says, the cause is consumers shopping. You know at the supermarkets with automated cashiers I, I just i get that it's speaking to a larger kind of structural thing but i just find that example so ridiculous and a lot of the theme kind of ridiculous because more humane businesses always tend to cost more money you know in this kind of system we're in it's certainly like something like a supermarket if a struggling single mother like rosie was for much of the series Is she meant to go to some more expensive supermarket with real cashiers and spend more money and get less food for her kids out of some principle that that's the way you sustain a supposedly society that'll be healthy otherwise? I just, I find it very ridiculous and very... You know, celebrity actor riding a private jet to go lecture people about global warming and how they should reduce their carbon footprint kind of thing. It was a little privileged. Yeah. It's placing blame on the individual in a way I find really maybe easy for RTD to write, but I think that won't ring true to a lot of viewers in very different situations than him. And in Muriel, who, you know, comes from money, at least in the sense of having the big house.
1: I think there's... um. I think there's a problem that RT tries to kind of get around, I think that he can't, which is that he wants to galvanize people to action. You know, in Muriel's speech, you know, she says things like, you know, did you did you walk out? Did you write letters of complaint? Like he you know, he wants to preach to people for not doing stuff. But the stuff that he suggests they do is not actually enough like the range he doesn't like the there isn't a big enough range of political kind of action or activism kind of gesture that almost i mean maybe there is in some ways i mean we see people blowing up a concentration camp and stuff but uh, at at the same time as within all of that You know, we get the whole, ooh, Rosie drew the van through, uh, drove the van through a fence and stuff, and we we get, it's all, it's all very acceptable, and this kind of leads me to something maybe a bit crucial, which is the difference between this and uh, Children of Earth, for example, which is that when it comes to the people sort of taking action and fighting back against all these horrible things, in Children of Earth, you know, it it turns into a brawl kind of you know we get violence we get people fighting in this in years and years it's it's kind of bloodless like it's kind of it's kind of well you know just get your phones out yeah if we stream it to the world everything will be fine it's like it's sort of um it's kind of the, the the range of the range of imagination and the range of um how far he's willing to take it is maybe not sufficient for this kind of story i don't know
2: I, I like the idea of galvanizing people to enact direct change, and like you say, I love Rosie breaking down the zoning fence and all that kind of thing, but the idea that it's just a problem of people being complacent and apathetic, it's its so wrong-footed. Like, we see with Viv in the earlier episodes how the media is a huge arm of how power is sustained with, you know, her constant onslaught news channel and her suppression of journalists like in this episode, and we see in this show, like um, David was saying in the fourth podcast, how global and interconnected issues are how systemic they are across you know countries and regions and everything and even if a lot of British British citizens topple their government by telling on it to the police or whatever that doesn't magically fix the rest of Europe's issues let alone climate change and I don't think RTD RTD is doing some Trotsky thing of saying the whole world should be energized to you know do an international permanent world revolution like the finale drops so much of the fascism engagement stuff and reduces it so much in that we have people you know whistleblowing to the police or filming essentially filming refugees standing at a fence we already have all these videos and there's still concentration camps in multiple countries so i don't understand why he thinks this would actually fix anything like course to action are good but like you're saying the actual methods and reasons he's doing surrounding them just feel kind of childish and reductive to me here
0: I thought that too, like the videos, I wasn't convinced that that would be enough to, you know, galvanize anyone. And it sort of speaks to how sort of underplayed the fascism element was. And I think that's exemplified by the fact as well that we don't really see what the world is like after Viv is taken down. I mean, we know the BBC's back, thank God. But other than that, it's very... We know there's
1: another Viv, that bow tie Mm -hmm. guy.
0: Oh, yeah. (laughs) Everything's the same.
2: Either yeah. said the whole thing was collapsing, we just gave it a push. But how was it collapsing? Like, how did he sets all up the realistic ways things are bad? And then he says, oh, they were all starting to collapse at the end anyway. But how? He makes that huge point in the in the
1: final scene about how the, the family were just a little part of it. You know, you see, every, they were part of just a larger movement, but at the same time, that kind of assumes that everyone would rise up against them at once. Like, this all just conveniently happened, or the, the people fought back. And it's like would that happen is that realistic you know i don't know and certainly when it comes to fascism being underplayed like you said of uh, tom tit there's like there's no engagement with the actual social dimension of fascism and the fact that fascism relies on having an actual support base people in the population who support and are complicit in what's happening like a significant like sizable bit of it there, that movement of people in the middle of society against those at the bottom right? We, we, I mean, as the most we get of that in this show is people voting for Viv. You know, we don't really get, like, who, who are the Viv cultists in this? Who, who are the people who wear the Viv hats and have the conspiracy theories about how Viv is actually saving the world from the adrenochrome-devouring paedophile reptilians and stuff? Like,
2: where's that? In RTD's conception of why people like Viv, like, he's, this is a direct quote from him. He says about people like Viv, that's us we wonder where Donald Trump came from and then we go online and talk like that and we wonder where all this anger comes from. So I think in his mind, we're like, we're all a bit of Viv. So it's not unbelievable at all. She would have a lot of people outright supporting her. I don't know what I think of that thought he has there, that deep down we're all Donald Trump and he comes about because we talk like him online. Like that's odd.
0: Don't you think it would have been like potentially relevant to include a scene of Muriel and Rosie, you know, expressing regret for having voted for Viv. Like it's easy to forget that they did and it shouldn't be easy to forget what they did because it's like pretty serious, really.
1: Speaking of scenes that we could have had, this is kind of changing tack a bit, but um, one detail I did like, and I was a bit annoyed that it was just a detail, was Bethany and the other kind of techno augmented girls in her workplace they they essentially unionize like we yeah. uh, we see them all kind of working together to basically just you know completely subvert their bosses and kind of their owners So to speak, but that's just that's almost that's throwaway. That's incredibly hand waved, and like I wonder if there is there a deleted scene somewhere of Bethany kind of overcoming her fears and kind of convincing the others to join her or something like that. I
2: I could really buy that that happened too. Like Bethany and presumably her friends and associates are so adept with the technology, I can totally see them being able to subvert their bosses, who I presume are much more, you know. Uh, business types i, I can really I, I like the idea of them de- de- declaring independence a lot but i wish we'd got more detail yeah because i think that's that's that could be quite realistic and it would have been really interesting to see more of it
0: do we think that bethany is overpowered and if so do we think it's a problem
3: yes i do think that because like i i know i mean it, like you're saying like it's cool that that happened but this is that's The Bethany kind of plotline that started with with episode 5, how she kind of got these powers and she's now like a techno wizard. Like, that is the largest loosening of logic for me. It's like, I don't understand, like, so basically the government has given her these abilities to control all technology, like, across the entire fucking, like, island. Right? Like, she can control all of Britain. Um, and that, and her and those people in that room can do so. And, you know, we, we keep hearing all this stuff like, no, 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 no. The government owns me now. So it's not like I'm, I'm free or whatever, but we never see any consequence of the government owning her. Right. So she helps uh, Edith out with completely illegal activity with her powers in episode five and nothing really happens to her, you know? Um, so again, I, I, it just seems baffling that a government and not even like that, that Vivian Rook's government. You know what I mean? That Vivian Rook's government would allow this to happen, would give these kind of basically, you know, technological wizard power to individuals and really not reinforce it in any meaningful way so they can just kind of topple the fucking government yeah. um, with what they're doing. Yeah, it's just a complete loosening of logic it's there. It's funny because
2: Stephen gets three years for having the gun and Bethany gets nothing for taking down the government. You know, illegal hacking and mass privacy invasions and all the other stuff she was doing with the technology. But that's that's all fine apparently i mean i i support it but i'm just surprised there was no pushback at all
0: and so little i mean okay i i don't have a problem with the fact that bethany is really overpowered because it's kind of just one of those things like if you need to plot convenience might as well put it in the problem is that like so little time is devoted to how bethany feels about her augmentations and like all she really gets is a scene where she's sad that edith didn't care about her until she turned 18. But the thing is, like, neither did the show. Like, Bethany didn't have any real active role in the plot until she got the, you know, tech stuff. So it's, you know, she was underserved, I felt.
1: In light of what we were saying about her transhuman stuff in the first few episodes, it's quite ironic how it's turned out, isn't it? <laughs> like, it's just not been nearly as relevant as we all thought.
2: Bethany did do a proper transformation of herself because if you remember, in her first two scenes in the first episode, she's played by a completely different actress. Uh uh-huh. So she did manage to completely transform herself just much earlier than we thought.
0: I do think there is a pattern of like things which seem really important turn out to be purely like plot uh, contrivances. Like the blink, that seemed like a really big deal at the end of whatever episode that was, and here it's just a tower, it's just like a video game obstacle.
2: <laughs> it's a Ubisoft tower.
0: Yeah, it's a yeah. Ubisoft tower.
2: If we're still talking about women in the Lions family, we got our fifth performer for Lincoln at the end of the episode. What did you think of how that turned out in the end? <laughs> is, is it a minefield? <laughs> Humble <laughs> I, I well I'll, I'll speak then i I the understated way Lincoln was revealed I liked, but at the same time, I feel like like rtD doesn't deserve huge congratulations for anything like that like um there's a, there's a kind of neatness to how the trans stuff was very. In the background and never focused on, and I like in a way the story was told that way. But certainly, it's never a focal point to um, you know, Lord congratulations on or anything like that. I think it was a bit glib. One thing, the only thing that really annoys me is most of the other recastings look pretty similar. But I swear, only the third and fourth Lincoln looked particularly similar. I can forgive the baby looking different, but apart from that, yeah, not not a huge issue. Whereas like Lee was such a close close resemblance to the last two actors for Lee. Didn't Lee look different at the end? It annoyed me a bit that Lee had to be gentrified in order to be accepted as part of the family.
1: I always enjoyed watching the character because he didn't change according to his surroundings, but when he was able to, he did show that he loved and enjoyed their company. But looking back it's been completely clear to me that he was always presented as this ruffian, working class dadless kid who would end up in criminal activity no matter what. Right from the very first episode with Bomb the Chinese to the fact that Rosie had called the police on him in episode four and now that he's wearing shirts and combing his hair and smiling he's presented as having grown and matured into this polite middle-class young man and only now should we feel comfortable accepting him as part of this horrifyingly liberal family i think the whole lincoln thing i think it it, 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 it was it kind of it was kind of glib it was like Okay well you know we can't we're not I'm not going to bother writing an actual main transgender character in the show we're not to actually like go into her you know struggles or you know anything like that we're just but you know it's just it's just going to be in the background and stuff and haha I've done that's, i've ticked off the trans representation box brilliant haha give me a uh, asspats you know but uh, nonetheless it's just it's kind of it's at the same time sure rtd might not have been able to do that particularly well it might have turned out you know a, a shit show but yeah at the same time i'm like i'm not yeah you're right basically i agree i'm not inclined to give him superb you know sort <laughs> of congratulations for that
2: it's a nice representation that it was just so natural and it was never a drama and you know, I think that's nice to have on TV and if it wasn't for the transsexual terminology issues earlier on, I'd be much more warm to it. But yeah, you're right. It's so minor that in a way the minorness is nice but it's also, it's minor so it's nothing huge to congratulate, yeah. Celeste had hair at the end as well. Yes,
1: <laughs> she did. What did you think of like the, the, everyone's appearances at the end? So we sort of saw like, they all looked a bit, I, I was amazed that Muriel was still alive, actually. I totally thought Muriel would be dead by twenty
2: thirty-four.
0: Um, someone did say that Bethany would become senor, which is so almost accurate that I think it deserves yeah. some mm. congratulations. She,
2: become, she looked like Laura Palmer in the red room at the end to me, when she was in the techno room with Edith. The dress and her manner of speaking and everything.
1: It was interesting how she's sort of she's so she's shown to have maybe outgrown her whole sort of transhuman fixation a little bit. Like, certainly, she doesn't, she doesn't show as much of a desire to become da- data now, like Edith was doing. She talks about it in kind of a past tense way. Like, I used to dream of this and stuff. And now she's sort of she's, she's outgrown it, she's matured it, which maybe has um, implications for the whole metaphors that Archie was setting up in the first episode. But let's not go there.
0: I thought it was implied that she would do it eventually, but just because Edith was dying, that was the more, um, you know, salient. Yeah, maybe.
3: She said she's going first. I think that's what she said. Yeah, she, she, that, that's, a good, that's a good point. That's yeah. a good point. I, it, I accept that. Frodo
2: and Bethany's Sam. And the water is the Grey Havens. <laughs>
3: <laughs> well, I like that it was the realization of the promise that she made in episode two. That kind of spooky scene when she's like, you know, you can live forever. And now it's, she kind of made, she made, you know, like that scene, like it did have kind of like a spooky kind of feel to it. Like, it was very dramatic, and now I kind of know why.
0: Just one thing, one little thing I really loved in this finale was the way Muriel is, like, nostalgic for Senor. So it's like, he's evoking nostalgia for a piece of tech which... I mean, it exists, but, like, it's a fictional future piece of tech. I thought that was kind of charming, almost.
1: She called him his, her little friend, didn't she? I thought that was kind of sad and sweet, how just this little, this AI was like a friend to her, just because he answered, actually spoke to her. (laughs) And like the family who were abandoning her at various points. It's her friend simulator.
0: And yet she hates the automated checkouts. So there's that contradiction. (laughs) Yeah.
1: well, Well, I will say one thing about the whole ending thing that I did love, like the big, sort of the kind of the big hit was when we got the fast forward montage and then it stopped and became a rewind. My mm-hmm. jaw hit the fucking floor there. I loved that. It was kind of like the, the payoff of kind of the whole structure of the series. I was like, oh, okay. just getting interesting. Hold on, hold on. Go back a bit. Okay. Irrespective of what it. came after.
0: I oh, you didn't like, you
1: didn't like the rewind?
0: <laughs> no, no, I didn't.
1: Oh, no, why not?
0: Big cutesy. Um, it was trying to, like, nudge nudge at saying that, like, oh, the whole series was framed as Edith's, like, memories being transferred. Like, I definitely got the sense that that's what that sequence was trying to suggest. Not, like, outright say, but suggest. But, you know, this... the The show has had, like... Events past that Edith couldn't possibly have known about, so like the depth of narration is all off there. And <laughs> what? What?
1: Nothing. I don't know. Come it's on. it's a bit it's a bit like no, it's yeah. a bit nitpicky, I think. Well, there were no, scenes that Edith no, wasn't in. Like obviously she wasn't remembering those bits, but we still had to see them.
0: I'm not finished complaining. The bit where <laughs> go on. <I'm... laughs> the bit where the guy's like, "Oh, we can't have enough Muriel." That was so like, okay, is this meta now? But you have to be meta. <laughs> To serve like some kind of purpose, like... Are you it's RTD back
1: what a great character he wrote with Muriel. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, we all love was, her, yeah, more scenes.
0: Just completely apropos of nothing, this whole like weird meta angle, which adds nothing to the plot or the themes or... Yeah, just it was just naff, I wasn't into it. What do we think of Leaning Tower of Pisa gag?
1: Yeah... It was okay. I thought the Notre Dame coming back was funnier, actually.
0: Yeah, I kind of liked it because it seemed there was, like, kind of a theme throughout this episode of, like, people versus property and how, you know, property doesn't have inherent value. Like, uh, Muriel selling the house and stuff. And, yeah. And, like, oh, okay, we can just bring the Notre Dame back. And, you know, it's not inherently this, like, critical thing to, like, the happiness of the world or whatever. So it seemed like RTD did have a little bit of a thread running through the episode. And plus, like, Bethany keeps on being raised that, you know, Bethany is the property of the government and that, like, Edith only sees her as, like, a tool, which I think the show kind of is also guilty of that. But I don't know. The, it was a nice gag, basically, I thought. And it did have context. It had all a purpose.
2: This, all this property philosophy. Did the show radicalise you, Tom Tit?
0: Uh, <laughs> You could say that, yeah. But no, also, I have one thing, one other thing, which is that there's been so many discussions throughout these past few episodes about whose fault it was for Daniel's death, and it really bugged me that Ralph's name never came up, even though I know it couldn't have, because um, no one knows that he is the reason Victor got deported, but it is objectively his fault.
2: Edith knows. How else would we have seen it?
0: (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. But no, um... God, what is... Yeah, no. But no, Ralph. Fuck Ralph. Just, yeah, fucking.
1: I think the unfairness of Ralph getting away scot-free with it it is kind of that one grain of sort of bitterness that maybe we could have used a bit more of. I don't know. It's like that one just sort of like, nope, nope, the world's unfair. That one element of it. <laughs> yeah, and then yeah. otherwise... A weirdly uplifting ending
0: yeah yeah i mean to be honest i didn't need justice for ralph and it's probably a good thing that i feel so passionate about it because you know it means that the show has been effective but yeah i thought it's worth mentioning that ralph got away pretty scot-free
2: deadlocked any last words
3: yeah <laughs> well podcast? oh okay i was like it's just a nickname all right <laughs> yeah. we're gonna give take us, the locked out us, of deadlocked <laughs>
0: Give was your regeneration speech now please
3: uh, all right um love is a promise no hold on um so I mean, it's basically what I was saying at the beginning. It's like, I liked what the message, where the message went. Um, it was what I want, where I wanted it to go ever since hearing those, those speeches about, I don't even know the term I used. I liked it. Whatever. But, you know, like thinking that we can't change things because this is the worst it's getting. It's just going to get worse. I liked all that, but it was just, it was so fucking messy in the execution. And it was just kind of disappointing. It was disappointing after, you know, how sensational I feel like the series has been. But, Uh, overall um it's been a fantastic series.
2: Does anyone else want to phone in with some last words of their own? I thought the turning point in public opinion
0: might have been that actual British citizens were being kept in the erstwhile camps, but that was completely dropped by the episode, so it was just another video of a refugee camp. Uh, I can't imagine that would matter much to his voter base, but I guess that's not any more unrealistic than Trump using Pence as a puppet.
2: Despite all that, I was, I was satisfied by the ending. It was a satisfying conclusion to the series, and I'm happy with it, but part of me still wishes the episode was
0: just Muriel ranting at the audience for an hour. What gets me about the episode isn't just that it's got a happy ending. Davies does happy endings sometimes, but that I feel that Miracle Day was a lot more on the nose about what would probably really happen if somebody went into a
3: camp and recorded what was going on there. And we're doing it in my country, and people go down there with cameras and they take video of what it's like in the camps, and kids are dying in the camps. I mean, nobody's going down there with a rocket launcher, let's put it that way. I don't know if what he's trying to present us with is mollification or galvanization.
0: Well, what exactly does he think the endgame of this is? Or is it just good television? I I just, sometimes I really don't know with Davies.
1: Guys, guys, I just figure out why it cut out ambiguously at the ending. It's because that very second is when the nuke hits. Do you remember episode one?
3: (gasps) (laughs) Oh my god.
0: The actual same nuke from episode one.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Like the, the same. The list.
0: same. <laughs> <laughs> Holy shit. Oh my god. <laughs> That's
3: pretty wow. good. Years and years and years and years and years and years and years. <laughs> is, is the actual title? Is the actual title of the show? Wow. That's yeah, they, amazing.
0: Have you heard of these new slow missiles? <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> they're more energy efficient.
3: <laughs> you yeah, they're made out of fucking compost or onions or something. <laughs>
2: It just not fly missile. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>